the book of Luke chapter 20 in the Bible, and the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Luke 20 and Ephesians 5. Luke 20 and Ephesians chapter 5. Stand with me, if you will, please, as we read God's Word together. In Luke chapter 20, and in verse number 25, And he said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people. And they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Verse 25 again, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. Now in Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. And right in the middle of the passage, I would like for you to notice these words, Christ is the head of the church. Now, Lord, as we open your word tonight, speak to our hearts again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the old world, in Europe, I'm speaking about, every nation had a state church. And tonight I continue this series on why I am a Baptist or what it means to be a Baptist, dealing with two of the ingredients in the Baptist formula, the A and the S from the acrostic, B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S, A standing for the autonomy or self-government of the, of the local church, and secondly, the S at the end of the word standing for separation of church and state. And that idea of the separation of church and state, that in the old world, as I said, every nation had a state church. By state church, I mean that there was one dominant church in the nation, which was given favor over all the other churches. And it was controlled by the government, not the leaders of the church, It was financed by the taxes of the people. Even if you were a total pagan, you still had to pay your taxes and you had to support the church even though you didn't believe in it. And sometimes, depending on the country, they would allow other churches. They called it an act of toleration. They tolerated other churches. And in some countries, they were not even allowed to have another church of any type than the designated uh, organized, established church, the state church. In France, England, Spain, and Portugal, that church was the Roman Catholic Church. In England, it was the Anglican, or sometimes we call it Episcopalian, or sometimes just the Church of England, but a state church. In Scotland, interestingly, it was the Presbyterian. And most people don't believe that Presbyterians, they don't think that Presbyterians would ever have been a state church, but they definitely were in Scotland. 
In Germany and in Scandinavia, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and so on, it was the Lutheran church that was the established church. And in Greece and Russia and the nations of Eastern Europe, it was the Orthodox church that was the state church. Now, the problem with the state church, I've already read to you the passage, haven't I? Ephesians 5 and 23, Christ is the head of the church, not the king, not the prime minister, not the parliament, not the Congress, not the House of Representatives, not the president. Christ is the head of the church. He is the only head of the church. And when the state takes over the church, there's several problems that ensue. First of all, this makes the church answerable to ungodly, usually, political leaders. When the state establishes the church, ambitious, self-centered people began to use the church as a political tool to wield power rather than to use it for the purposes of worship and uh, carrying out the Christian religion. Secondly, when, the, when Christ is not the head of the church, it always creates a re- religious bureaucracy. And then people turn against the church because we don't like bureaucracy, whether it's in the Department of Motor Vehicles or whether it's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the same reason, people don't like bureaucracy in government. They don't like bureaucracy when it comes to the worship of God. And then maybe greatest of all, a state church violates people's freedom of conscience it inevitably brings persecution. Wherever one church is established and has dominance and has control, then always, given enough time, there will be persecution to the people who don't belong to that particular church, as we see even here in early America. And so when these Europeans began to come to America and settle America, then they repeated the same mistake. That was their background. And just as they had always been used to an established, state-governed, state-supported church, so they brought the concept to America. The pilgrims that landed up there in New England were Congregationalists. And so within a few short years, the Congregational Church was the established state church of, of the, the New England colonies. And guess what they did? They had been persecuted by the Church of England, and so now that they're in power, they persecute other people, particularly Baptists and uh, people from other groups. In Maryland, um, an established church was set up. Maryland was set apart really to be the Roman Catholic colony. And if you go to uh, Maryland today, you will find that there's still an extremely high percentage of people uh, who are natives of the state that are also Roman Catholic. Here in the Carolinas and up in Virginia, the state church was established. It was the Church of England because so many people here came from Scotland and England and Ireland and so on. It was primarily Episcopal here in the Carolinas. And then the Baptist came to America as well early in those days. They weren't any in the pilgrims and the Puritans, but they began to come. 
And I, I don't have time to give you all of the details of that. But boy, some, there, there's some stories that are unbelievable what happened to Baptists because Baptists never anywhere on this planet in history have had a state church. Now, mark that down. I, I told you the other day, most people don't know why they're Baptists. Here's something you can say as a Baptist with great pride. Never one time has the sun set on a country where Baptists had an established church because we don't believe in established churches. We don't believe, we believe in the separation of church and state. It's very basic to what we practice in our belief system. And so Baptists came to the new world and immediately they began to be persecuted because they were always the non-establishment people. A man named Roger Williams and another man named James Clark are well-known figures in Baptist history. They were persecuted. In fact, Roger Williams refused to have his infant children baptized. And because he did, he was banished from the colony of Massachusetts, operated at that time between uh, primarily Congregationalists, but also some Presbyterians. And both of them, of course, practiced pedo-baptism, infant baptism. And Roger Williams was a Baptist, came over from England, said, no way, you're going to baptize my infant. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that. We believe that baptism follows salvation. And he was banished from the colony for it. He had to cross over the state line. And to be banished in those days basically meant that you go and live with the Indians. And it could be very dangerous at that point in time. There was another man named James Clark. And he and Roger Williams looked for in New England a parcel, a, a, a ground, a piece of ground that had not been claimed by either uh, any of the other uh, denominations. And today we call that parcel of land Rhode Island. And Rhode Island was established by those men. The first Baptist church built in America was in Providence, Rhode Island. But interestingly, they never established a state church because they didn't believe in a state church. They understood that the church and the state are separate. They believe that verse, Luke chapter 20 and verse number 25, when Jesus said concerning the relationship of the church and the state, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. Even a child's logic and mind can comprehend this. Some things belong to the state and some things belong to God. And they are mutually exclusive. They're not to get together. When they do, bad things happen to people. And so these two Baptists founded the state of Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is the first state in the 50 states that had religious freedom. The second state that had religious freedom was the state of Virginia. And it didn't get it all at once. It got it in little increments, in bits and pieces. And Virginia was really a very strong state for the Church of England. But they allowed what they called toleration, meaning that you can, the Baptists can practice, but they can't have any say in the state. And they still have to pay their taxes to pay for the Episcopal Church in the state of Virginia.
But uh, the Baptists there were, they, they were allowed. In fact, they were regulated like this. This is an interesting fact of history. There could be one Baptist pastor per county, one per county. They could only have one little church in those days, and they could have no missionaries because in other areas, the Baptists had led the way in missionaries going especially to the Indian peoples and taking the gospel of them. And, the, and at that time, the, the Anglican church in Virginia, the state church, said one Baptist preacher per county and no missionaries. We'll take care of that ourselves. And I wish I had time to tell you about the Baptists that were beaten and persecuted because they wouldn't baptize primarily their infant children. That was the primary reason that they were persecuted. They would not be a part of the established church because of that doctrine of believers' baptism rather than infant baptism. There's an interesting story. There were two or three Baptists, and they were witnesses for the Lord. Baptists have always believed in that. And they witnessed for the Lord everywhere they went. And somebody got tired of that and turned them in to the sheriff and said, you got to shut these Baptists down. And the sheriff of Spotsylvania County in Virginia said, you know what? These Baptists can't meet a man on the road, but what they rammed down his throat, a text of scripture. And he beat them. And the story goes that they were beaten, they were publicly whipped, and the blood ran down their legs and, and filled their shoes. And they thrown into prison. And Patrick Henry, the famous lawyer who lived there in Richmond nearby, Patrick Henry went and said to them, I will defend you. I'm an Anglican, I'm an Episcopalian. He was a Christian man, uh, Patrick Henry. I will defend you, and I will not charge you anything. And good that he didn't because they didn't have any money to pay. And he went to court, and he gave this impassioned plea as he charged that jury. He said, my God, a man in jail in the state of Virginia for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he so moved that jury that they allowed those Baptists to go free just one of many, many stories that come to us today about the persecution of Baptists, even in the early days of America. Now, the colonial period, of course, ended when the Constitution was formed and we became a nation. And I want to talk to you for a few moments about the founding fathers and religious freedom, because you know they worked on the Constitution there for a number of years. And the founding fathers then, after they had put freedom of religion into the Constitution, they added the First Amendment. You're familiar, aren't you, with the First Amendment? But do you know why they added those amendments? They were very, very afraid that people would not interpret the Constitution right, and therefore they added amendments to emphasize things they had already said in the Constitution, but they wanted to reemphasize them so nobody could ever misunderstand them. What were those things that they emphasized? Well, each of those things was an amendment, and down through the years, we've continued to add uh, not very many amendments, but we have 
more now, but the very first amendment before they, in order to even ratify the thing, some of the states came back and said, we want extra emphasis, extra guarantees on certain freedoms that we never want to lose. And so the very first amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. My, what a powerful power. A statement like nobody had ever written into a governmental document in all of history before that. Listen to those words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, making up an established church, or prohibiting the exercise thereof. It's called the first freedom, the first of the first freedoms, because you have other freedoms mentioned in that first amendment later on. Freedom of speech, which was one of the big issues this week in the country. Freedom of the press, that you can print and distribute and disseminate materials as long as you don't libel and slander people in those materials. You have freedom to say, to state your opinion and print it and give it out. Freedom of assembly. If you want to have a peaceable meeting, peaceable assembly, where you meet and talk and preach and make speeches and disseminate information, you have absolute freedom to do that in this country, according to the First Amendment. And then there's freedom to petition the government over uh, to redress our grievances. If we don't like something, we can get as many people as we can and sign a petition and go and present it to the proper officials. And then we have the Second Amendment, The Second Amendment, somebody said, was to give us a gun so we could protect the First Amendment. And I think there's probably some pretty good sense in that, don't you? And so the freedom to bear arms, to own and bear arms, much under attack today in the country because it's been so misused by the criminal element, and yet it's a very important part of our Constitution, the Second Amendment. During the campaign... I noticed there was a slight, slight change of rhetoric and verbiage by one of the candidates. Instead of speaking about freedom of religion and to practice it, uh, to, 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 um, the First Amendment says, nothing shall prohibit the exercise thereof. In other words, you can go out and you can talk to people about your religion. You can witness. You can do religious work and out in the public community, in the public square. But Hillary Clinton over and over and over said this, and I didn't pick it up at first, I will admit, and then I heard somebody mention it who had picked it up. She changed the terminology. She didn't say freedom of religion. She said, I'm for freedom of worship. Ah, do you get the difference? Learn to listen to these politicians They're taking our freedoms by subtly changing little things, and then that gets implemented over time. People don't pick up on it. I don't want freedom to worship. 
I want freedom of religion to exercise it thereby. You see, they don't care what we do inside the walls of this church. We can do anything we want, preach anything we want, say anything we want, do anything we want. As long as we keep it in here, we're no threat to anybody out there. But it's when we begin to have freedom uh, to practice that religion and to exercise it, then the secularist and the atheist, they begin to get upset with us. But when we can no longer practice it out there, then what does it matter if we come here and listen to sermons and sing music that we can do nothing with? We can't apply it in the practical sense. And so remember that the next time the politicians get up and begin to talk about freedom of worship. You and I are not worried about freedom of worship. What we're concerned about is do we have freedom of religion and to exercise it thereby. We ought to all be very proud as Baptists because were it not for the Baptist, we wouldn't probably have that first, uh, well, we would have the First Amendment, but we wouldn't have the strength of it that we have. Up in Connecticut, there was a little association of Baptist churches, not very many, probably 10 or 12 Baptist churches, and they were all little small churches. But these Baptists were better trained than the Baptists, very frankly, of our day. They understood how important the separation of church and state and freedom of religion was. And they were called the Danbury Baptist, the Danbury Baptist Association. And it was in the year uh, of uh, 18 and, uh, I mean, like, uh, it was in the year of 18 and 1. I think it was like in October of that year. And they wrote a letter to the newly elected president of the United States, who was Thomas Jefferson. And this is in October, so he answers them on January the 1st, just uh, six weeks later. The Danbury Baptists wrote this letter, and I'm just reading it to you. They, the Baptists wished to express concern over the lack in their state constitution, the state constitution of Connecticut, of explicit protection of religious liberty and against governmental establishment of religion. And they wrote these words, now I quote, Our sentiments, Mr. President, are uniformly on the side of religious liberty. That religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals. And that no man ought to suffer in name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions, and that the legitimate power of the civil government extends no further than to punish a man who works ill to his neighbor. But, sir, our constitution of government in Connecticut is not specific. Our ancient charter, together with the laws made, coincide therewith, are coincident therewith, were adapted as the basis of our government at the time of the revolution. As such, our laws and usages are such still so that religion is considered as the first object of legislation. And therefore, what religious privileges we enjoy as a manner part of this state, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights. 
We have reason to believe that America's God has raised you up to fill the chair of state out of that goodwill which he bears to the millions over which you preside. May God strengthen you for the arduous task which providence and the voice of the people have called you to sustain and support you in your administration against all the predetermined opposition of those who wish to rise to wealth and importance on the poverty and subjugation of the people. And may the Lord preserve you safe from every evil and bring you at last to his heavenly kingdom through Jesus Christ, our glorious mediator. Signed, Nehemiah Dodge, Ephraim Robbins, and Stephen Nelson. They were the officials of this little Baptist association. Isn't that interesting? Don't you love that language that they used? Boy, could anybody today talk like that? I don't know if our generation is smart enough to talk like that anymore after watching television for all these years. The vocabulary, the way they use the language so beautiful. And look at those men's names, Nehemiah, Ephraim, and Stephen. They didn't get that out of a book they bought at Walmart. It came right out of the book, didn't it? Interesting change of times. Well, on January 1st, two and a half, year, or two and a half months later, Jefferson responded. January 1, 1802. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, and that he owes account to no one other for his faith or his worship. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature would make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man. And I tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my highest respect and esteem, Thomas Jefferson. And he used that phrase, a wall of separation. And so we come down now to the 20th century, our times, and the Supreme Court picked up on that. And they have used that to go much further than what Jefferson was talking about here. They've used it to basically say, you can't read the Bible in school. You can't pray in school. You're limited in where you can exercise your religion in some municipalities and so on. And we have seen a, a gradual erosion of that separation of church and state that our forefathers talked about, so I believe. Because you see, the state should have no authority, none, zero, zilch, zip, in, in religious matters. It's what the Constitution says. I read it again. It says in uh, the first article, Congress can make no law, no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the exercise, the way you carry it out. And the government has always, rep it's, it's always respected that. Out in Arizona, the, or I think it's Arizona, the West, the Hoff, 
Hopi Indians had a practice going back for centuries. They smoked peyote, a, a, a drug. They smoked, it, they smoked it as a part of their worship services. They got high on drugs to worship. The Supreme Court heard it many, many years ago and said, we're not going to rule on it. We don't have any authority over that because they do it as, as worship. Now, since there may have been some changes, I'm not sure, but originally they said, it's none of our business, it's religious. As long as they don't get out on the streets, we have nothing to do with it. Up in West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia, there are people who believe that to demonstrate their faith, they pick up copperheads and rattlesnakes. I watched that documentary on TV. Did you watch that guy held that rattlesnake right up there like that on his nose? And he was gone. It looked like he could kiss it. This was a way he demonstrated his faith. And people would get bit and people would die. And somebody said to the authorities, you ought to go and stop that. They're crazy. And the authorities said, no, we can't stop that. As long as they don't bring them out here on the street, as long as they abide by the laws of the state, practice a religion. Now, that's going pretty far, isn't it? It's going pretty far. But the courts held for over a century that you could almost do anything. You had absolute freedom, even if it was freedom to kiss a rattlesnake or get high on dope or just do crazy things because of that First Amendment. It also meant that the church has no authorities in matter of law and government. The Florence Baptist Temple doesn't get a vote. The Florence Baptist Temple has no ability to do anything in the sphere of government, the making of laws. We have not, no, not, it's like we don't exist as a church. You say, well, you talk about things like that, and you tell us sometimes that go and oppose something or write letters or make phone calls or something to officials. Yeah, but we don't do that as a church. You're doing that as an individual. You're exercising your right as an individual to call up a congressman or to write a letter or to vote in a certain way, but it has absolutely nothing to do. The church is separate from that. We're speaking as individuals. When I get up here and take on some political issue. I'm doing it as Bill Monroe. I'm not doing it officially as the spokesman for the Florence Baptist Temple because churches have no say in government other than indirectly through our members to influence them, of course. And that's the way it's always been. Now, that's being eroded. It is really under threat. And... As I told you, I got a tweet from Franklin Graham, and many of you perhaps got the same one if you were on, signed up on his list over there at the rally or whatever. And he is asking us to pray like we've never prayed. And he says, I believe in my lifetime, and Franklin's about two or three years younger than me, I believe in my lifetime that to preach the Christian gospel especially in the public square, somewhere outside the walls of the church, will be labeled hate speech. I told you this morning 
The American Family Radio is a network of radio stations. It came out of Tupelo, Mississippi. There was a Methodist preacher down there named Donald Wildman who started it up back in the, uh, I think, 1980s. And Wildman was a a wonderful Bible-believing man. Wildman really started that up to fight the evils of the day, abortion. He wanted to get a voice that could get into the public where the Christian message could be heard by the public. And so he started a little radio station in Tupelo, and then they got another and another and another and another, and now they must have 300 stations. And it's Dylan here. You hear through Dylan, and it's 90.5. Now, I keep my radio on that a lot when I'm in my car. And I would recommend you turn. They have a lot of good people on there. David Jeremiah's on there. And uh, I think Charles Stanley is on there. Adrian Rogers is on there about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoons. If I've got the station right, I think it's right. Some of the most Christ-honoring Bible preachers in America are on 90.5. And down in Alabama, there's an organization in Birmingham called, or Montgomery. It's called the Southern Poverty Law Center. They are to the left of everything you can think of. They are the most liberal advocacy group I can think of. The Southern Poverty Law Center. But they have tremendous influence. They make up a list every year of what they call hate groups. And then they send their list to people like CNN, and CNN puts that out. This week, this week, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I mean those folks are just a skeechy bit short of being communist. And I thought about that before I said it. I still say it. They're a skeechy bit short of being communist. They put on their list of people who engage in hate speech, the American Family Association. They put on there the name of the Liberty Council. Liberty Council is headquartered at Liberty, or was at least, and it's down in Orlando now, but it was headquartered at Liberty University. Jerry Falwell started the Liberty Council. Liberty Council was an organization founded to defend churches and Christian families when the government infringed on their rights as their their freedom of religion rights. A guy now named Matt Staver is the head of it. We've sent them money when they had crisis. We've sent them some missions money because we felt like they were defending us. They do basically on a bigger scale what David Gibbs Law Firm does for us. They defend our religious freedom rights. Who do you think the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center, put on their hate list to get right beside the American Family Network? The Liberty Council. And this hurts these organizations because they get labeled as a hate group and then they can't raise money because people don't know the real story. And CNN broadcasted all week. It was even on the trailer at one point probably on their website still. They list all the hate groups. And they put, they put them in with the neo-Nazis or with people like that. 
That's what we're dealing with. You know, the big lie, truth has fallen in the streets. A liberal media that hates Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. So religious freedom, we're not talking political theory here that might happen someday. We're talking reality that we're dealing with right now in this country. Now, I go to my second point. It won't take as long. So we have that first ingredient, the, the, the uh, separation of church and state. But there's another one of our doctrines that fit right beside it, and it's very important. It's called the autonomy of the local church. Autonomy means self-government, self-government. So a Baptist church is a self-governing congregation of people. How does a Baptist church govern itself? Okay, go back to Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the head. So who is the head of the Florence Baptist Temple and every other true Baptist church? The head of the church is Jesus Christ. It's what the Bible said. I had a fellow one time, I, I was, he was kind of belligerent, and I was having a little fun with him. And he said, well, who's the head of this church? Talking to me. He thought I was going to say it was me. I said, it's Jesus Christ. You got a problem? Go talk to him. I didn't even tell you where he is. <laughs> now, is that just theory? Is that just prattle? Is that just empty talk? Or is Jesus Christ really the head of the church? I believe he is. And I believe we are accountable to Jesus Christ. And because we're Baptists, we don't believe in being accountable to any, I mean any, outside power. No denominational structure. We don't go and ask the bishop about anything. We don't have the bishop sending us a preacher or sending down curriculum that we're supposed to teach to satisfy the denominational whim. We don't report to a synod. We don't report to a general assembly. We don't report to a council of bishops or a house of lords or the Congress or anybody else. We report to Jesus Christ. Oh, church, get hold of that today. We're accountable to him. No governmental bureau, no bureaucracy, no man, no committee of men. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, there's no denominational or ecclesiastical power ever given authority over a local church in the Bible. There are no denominations in the Bible. Find me one and bring it to me. There's no, not even a hint of a mention of denominations in the Bible, some structure. In the Bible, every congregation is answerable to Jesus Christ and him only, the head of the church. We are accountable to him. I said a few weeks ago in a message here, when I began the series, the very first message, I said, every Baptist church is headquarters of the Baptist faith. 
Now stop and think about that. I had somebody ask me, what do you mean every Baptist church is the headquarters of the Baptist faith? Now, a person that thinks in denominational terms, that makes no sense at all to them, does it? But if you think in Bible terms, Jesus, we're the headquarters of the Baptist faith right here. And so if you don't, you know, if, if you want to know who is over us, it's Jesus Christ as a congregation. He is the head of the church. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work together with other churches. We, we here are an independent congregation. We're not associated with Southern Baptist Convention or, or any other group. But through the years, Baptists have found ways to work together and not give up their autonomy, their ability to govern themselves. And so we've had fellowships and associations, and we've had Baptist unions, and we've had denominations, and we'd have everything. But Baptist denominations are not like Episcopalians and Methodists and Presbyterians and, and all those. We're totally undi- undi- uh, different from them. In fact, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is the big dominant Baptist denomination in America. But you know what? In reality, Every Southern Baptist church is also an independent church. They just don't say it like we do, but they are. There's nobody from the convention that can come and, and, and um, tell them who their pastor is going to be or who they got to elect as deacons or you've got to use this Sunday school literature. And a lot of Southern Baptist churches, very frankly, are about as independent as we are. They do what they want to do as a congregation under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no record in the scripture, I say it again, of any church, any one church ever having authority over any other church. We have no authority over any other church. We relate directly to the head, Jesus Christ. And we're answerable to him. Now, there's an interesting case. This is so fascinating, and I must hurry, but it happened right here in Florence, and it will end up, I think, in the Supreme Court of the United States, but it, it was a South Carolina Supreme Court decision just two weeks ago. There's a number of Episcopal parishes here in eastern and in, south, in the low country, South Carolina. And they were members of the Episcopal Church in South Carolina, the Diocese of South Carolina. And when the Diocese of South Carolina approved gay marriage in the Episcopal Church, these churches said, we're severing our ties with you. We're no longer going to be Episcopalians. And I, I even wrote the local rectors here and thanked them for their stand on that when, when that occurred. We're not going to be part of the denomination. We're going to be independent congregations, still Episcopal. We'll observe all the rites and ordinances, but we're not going to work with the denomination anymore. We do not believe in homosexual marriage. Well, the denomination filed a lawsuit against those churches and said, okay, if you're not going to be a part of our denomination, we're going to sue you. We want that property. That property that you're in belongs to us. And the the lawsuit dragged along for years. And two or three weeks ago, the South Carolina Supreme Court ruled on it, and they ruled in favor of the denomination and said the denomination owns the property of those churches. Now, it's very complicated. The local churches, some of them also signed another thing, and they're going to probably keep theirs. But here's what the Supreme Court of the state of South Carolina said. Even our Supreme Court in this state said this, quote, 
a congregational church, meaning us, a church that's autonomous, governed by its own people, not a part of a denomination or under ecclesiastical authority, a congregational church is an independent organization governed solely within itself, while a hierarchical or ecclesiastical or denominational church may be defined as one organized as a body with other churches having similar faith and doctrine with a common ruling ecclesiastical head. You get the significance of that? Even the court says, if you give over the authority of your church to a denomination, then you're in a hierarchical or an ecclesiastical church. But if you retain autonomy of your church, then you are a congregational church and the court treats you differently than if you are a part of a religious bureaucracy. So Christ is the head. Well, a head without a body is dead. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 20, 27 and 28 says we're the body. Christ is the head. Every member of this church, saved and born again and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, comprises the body. So you have head, Christ. The body is the congregation. And there's nothing in between us, and there's nothing over Jesus, that's for sure. And we report and relate to the Lord Jesus. Now, how does that work practically? Hear me. It works like this. Christ rules this church, and he does it through his written word, the Bible. And that's how Christ, the head, the head does the thinking. The head controls and rules the body. And Jesus Christ has already spoken. And when I tell you that the Bible is sufficient, it simply means everything that we need to operate the Florence Baptist Temple Our head, Jesus Christ, has already given us in his written word that will never change. All we have to do is find out what he wants us to do and obey him. And we don't need to appoint a committee or a council or a senate or a presbytery or something else to go and study something for two or three years that he's already told us what he wants us to do with. It's a simple system, isn't it? Christ is the head, the church is his body. Here is the brain. This is the thinking process for the whole thing. The congregation elects a pastor and some deacons to give local leadership in the congregation. Every one of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which energizes us. Why did you come out here again tonight? One reason, you think it's the right thing to do and the Holy Spirit confirms that in you and you say, I need to go to church tonight. I need to support the church. I need to hear the word of God. I need to meet with my brothers and sisters. I need to be encouraged in the faith and the Holy Spirit is the one that energizes that. And one last thing, turn to Revelation chapter one and verse 20. 
Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, and you see Jesus there walking around in some candlesticks. And in chapter 1 and verse 20, it tells us that those candlesticks are churches, seven local autonomous churches, which in chapter 2 and 3, he gives a little speech to every one of them. He speaks to every one of them individually, personally. He's never done that with us, but he did that with those seven churches, the church at Ephesus and all of those. And he warns them about something. Verse 5 of chapter 2. And he said to that church, you remember from where you have come and repent and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee and I will remove your candlestick. If you don't listen to my word, I will come and pluck your candlestick, meaning your status as a church. And you will no longer even be a New Testament church. You will have lost your light, your life, your right to exist. In Florence Baptist Temple, when the day comes that the Word of God is not seriously taken and obeyed in this church, let me tell you something. You don't have a church anymore. You got a crowd of people meeting in a building somewhere, but your candlestick has been pulled. Solemn, isn't it? So what is the importance of a self-governing church? Why would we fight for that right as Baptists? All Baptists would believe that. Because we can't keep our doctrine pure if we're trying to please the Lord, live by the Bible, and obey a denominational bureaucracy somewhere. The one thing I can say for sure about religious denominations, they all go left. They all go liberal. Look at history. As long as we can govern ourselves, it's real simple. Christ is the head. The Word of God is the instructions. The congregation is the body. And though we're not perfect, boy, I'm not perfect as a pastor. You're not perfect as congregationalists. But you know what? As long as we're trying, we're sincere, we're, we're, we're surrendered to the Lord, our doctrine is pure. We're, we're doing our best to ascertain His will for us. The second thing, the church must stay free. It must stay autonomous to focus on our mission. Our mission is not to please denominational bosses somewhere. Our mission is to please our head, the Lord Jesus, and is to have freedom in Christ. Stand to your feet with me if you will.